Hi there, everybody. This is Dan Cortin again with my good friend Chris Laparty. We want to welcome you back to the second episode of our podcast. For those of you who watched our first episode, you might notice that there's a little change at the top. In looking for the name of our podcast, we discovered that as much as we liked the name Growing Through Grief, we discovered that many other people had that same name. And in order to avoid confusion and hopefully make it simple for everybody to find, we we talked this week and we're changing the name of our podcast to A Father's Love, Healing Through Heartache. Uh, with, that encompasses everything we're trying to do as well because we certainly love our boys as we're, as we're going through this process of healing. We don't want to lose that fact that we love Mason and we love Jameson so much. So with that, uh, we want to thank everybody who did listen to our first episode where we uh, basically we shared our stories of who Mason was, who Jameson was, and the events leading up to those days where we lost our boys. And we shared our vision for the foundations, Miles for Mason, and Jameson's joy, and what we hope to do in the future in honor of our boys. Uh, we, we talked a little bit last week, too, about... The fact that uh, this is going to be a real and raw podcast, and tonight's probably going to be a real good example of it, as uh, Chris and I are going to share the stories of the day that we lost our sons, uh, and maybe the day or two leading up to it. So uh, we thank you for listening, and with that, I want to welcome Chris. Thanks for joining us, bud. Hey, Dan. Thanks for uh, thanks for setting everything up, and uh, I love the new name. I think it's it's a great a great way for us to keep progressing with our podcast because um, I know how much love you and I each had for our boys and uh, you know we really want to make sure we're we're getting through this helping each other out and helping other people out that either might be going through this or want to help other people that are going through it as well so I'm excited to uh, tell our stories and tell our boys stories great well I guess there's no there's no easy way to do this but Chris, why don't you why don't you tell us about the last couple of days you had with Mason? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, you're right. There's there's definitely no easy way for this. You know, uh, I think as I think back about it now, before Mason passed away, I, I think I might have taken my boys for granted almost. You know, I, I, there's always that little thought in your mind that something could happen, but you just never really think it's going to happen. You to be honest. I, I never, in the seven years Mason was on earth with us, did I ever think he was going to pass away. So it's it's something that kind of eats at me a little bit in that sense. Uh, thinking about last week and what we talked about with Mason's story and then coming into this week, you know, a lot more details that I'm going to go into in terms of, you know, we knew Mason was sick and, uh, again, he had ADEM, which was his immune system was attacking his brain and, Typically, uh, the survival rate for that was 90 to 95%. So we had a real good prognosis. We thought Mason is going to make it through this. We just got to let the medicine work. <clears throat> but it, it turned in the blink of an eye, to be honest. Uh, I was with Mason the majority of the time in the hospital. I just do a little better in hospitals compared to the rest of the family. So I, I, I took that, and I wanted to. I wanted to be there. I'm one of those parents I need to know every single moment what's going on and i ask a million questions to doctors and nurses and so but i remember it was probably the fourth night 
fourth. Yeah, it must have been the fourth night. And I remember sitting there. It was late. It was probably like eight or nine at night already. I remember just sitting there looking out the window. And I heard Mason take a breath. Now, he's on a ventilator. Um, and But this one sounded different. You can tell. This one sound something sounded wrong. Something sounded off. So I walked over to him real quick, and I took a look, and I remember uh, he had a rash all over his body like he had broken out. It, it, something was wrong right away, I could tell. And, yeah, I, I remember looking up at the heart monitor, and his heart rate was skyrocketing way higher than I'd ever seen it before. And then I, uh, being a firefighter, I, I you know, I, I knew with his brain that, checking his eyes and his pupils to see if his eyes were dilating or not, or to see if they were still reacting to light. I remember sitting there or standing there looking at him, starting to get a little, obviously anxious. This was all probably within five seconds of this happening. And I lifted up his eyelid and his eyes were not reacting to any light at all. And I think part of me knew already, I knew something was definitely wrong. And I ran and got a, a nurse and uh, called for the doctor right away. But yeah, I knew, I knew it was bad instantly. I called, I called my, uh, my fire chief. Well, first I called Amanda and told her she needed to get to the hospital right away. Now we live an hour away from the hospital. Amanda had to be home with the boys uh, and her mom was in town to help out as well. But she, you know, she was home with the boys. This was, COVID. This is early COVID last year. So only one of us could be in the hospital the whole time. So that was really hard too. Amanda and I always make decisions as a team and it's better when the team gets all the information right up front. I tried to pass on all the information I could to Amanda, but her not being there, it just made it harder on everything for us. But yeah, I knew something was wrong and they started working frantically on Mason. And I remember calling um, Amanda, telling her to get to the hospital right away. I remember calling my fire chief and asking if he could drive Amanda because I knew Amanda would not be in the right state of mind to be driving an hour in the dark all the way to Boise to the children's hospital. Yeah, it was it was extremely difficult standing there just watching them working on Mason as frantically as they could. So... If you remember from the first episode, they were treating his his um, brain swelling with steroids, but they decided now, since since this had happened, that they were going to go into the process of cleaning his blood to try to get all the negative stuff out of it. And uh, they don't like to do that right away. Usually the steroids work, but they obviously didn't think it was working. They, they rushed to try and get that. They called in all the specialists. I think the hard part for me, or the hardest part, as I think about it now, is that while they were working on him, I think I had a tiny bit of hope, but I think I already kind of knew that he wasn't going to make it. And I think that's uh, that's the hardest part, you know. Yeah, it was devastating, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting to find out what was going to happen. Amanda finally got there, and the next step was they they done they they did the blood cleaning. Uh, and then they were going to take him to do another brain scan to see what was going on. And I remember they called myself and Amanda over and sat us down at the computer to show us his brain scan. And on the left side was his brain activity. And on the right side 
it showed that he had no more brain activity. And wow, what a moment. Amanda screamed. Of course, I, uh, I think because I already had a gut feeling, I was in a moment of shock where I just stared at the screen. I just stared at it. Yeah, it was it was all a blur too because it's all happening so fast. You know, here we are a couple hours before we're thinking the steroids are working. In fact, I think earlier that day, Mason they they weaned him off some of the medication they had him on to sleep, and he had squeezed my hand. Hmm. And uh, boy, if I would have known that was the last squeeze. Yeah, that was that was really hard. To go from that where he squeezed my hand and the doctor said, Okay, that's good, we're making some progress to you know, probably however many hours later we uh that happening. What a change so quick. Uh that was a really, really hard night. I called my parents, asked them to fly out to Boise right away. I didn't tell them that Mason was already brain dead. I didn't want them having that on their mind the whole flight. I just told them they needed to get here, get there as quickly as possible. Amanda's mom was already there. So Amanda and I spent that night with Mason. I think I just sat there and prayed all night. I don't think I slept at all. Just laid by him, had my hand on his chest. The next day, a lot of stuff kind of happened that day. Uh, so first off, um, my family's Catholic. I'm Catholic. We're, we're firm believers in the Catholic faith. So our good friend, who's a priest, was actually passing through Boise at the time, Father Mark. And uh, he was Mason. He was all of our priests when we were stationed up in Alaska. So we had actually planned on meeting up with him before all this had happened. It's almost like when stuff like this happens, you start questioning God and whether, why me? You know, that's that's a hard thing. You know, as someone who was a firm believer, and I still am, but you start to question things. And, but it's almost like God put Father Mark right in our path, you know, him planning that trip and coming through, and we were going to meet up anyways. And we had Father Mark come up and give um, Mason some blessings of last rites before he passed uh, so that was important for us and then um, from there Amanda's mom and our boys came up we had to tell them we had to sit them down this is the hard part about it some of these things as uh, as time goes on you, you don't forget about them but you kind of it just it's, it doesn't stick out in your head, but as I think about it more now, I remember those that moment of telling my son, my other sons, that Mason was not going to make it, and uh, the difficulty of that moment, the shock of them, how shocked they were, how they felt. We got to all go spend some time with Mason, and then my parents arrived uh, <clears throat> and came up. Now again, I'll remind everyone again: this is COVID very early in the stages so getting all these people in in mason's room extremely difficult took a lot of people 
lot of approvals and I'm sure me pushing and saying, no, everyone's coming up here. You'd better just figure it out or I'm going to cause some trouble for you. That must've worked one way or another. <laughs> so <clears throat> my parents came up and then we, I had to tell them, um, that Mason wasn't going to make it. And of course my parents were very upset as well. And it was very, very difficult time for all of us as we all just kind of sat around Mason holding him, holding his hand, hugging him. Yeah, that's, uh, their feelings I'll never forget for sure. Luckily, uh, the hospital had some people there to help us out, some, some grief counselors and, uh, able to take, uh, Mason's handprint and footprint, uh, in plaster and on paper and, uh, yeah, the, that plaster handprint, very important to me and to Amanda. We, uh, it's prominent in our house. I, I touch it every single day. I put my hand on it uh, and talk to Mason to it. Well, actually, um, I'll put on Miles for Mason on the Facebook page and some other pages. Uh, you know, whenever we take a family picture, we have that that plaster hand of his and uh, his picture so that he's right there with us in the picture. Um, so the hard part now is Mason's heart is still beating, He's, but he's no longer has any brain activity. So the hard part now is, you know, Amanda and myself as parents have to make the decision of when it's time for him to go. And by far the hardest decision I ever had to make in my life. So we, uh, after that day was over, my parents left and Amanda's mom left with the boys. They went back to Mount Home Air Force Base to our house. And uh, just Amanda and I spent the night with Mason, trying to spend as much time as we could with him. I, uh, they gave us a quilt for Mason, and I asked if I could get two other quilts. And uh, those three quilts were laid out Mason all night long. And uh, it's just something I wanted to do for his brothers. You know, something that as as life goes on, as they get older, I could say, hey, here's here's this quilt. This was this was with your brother when he passed, and. You know, this is something that you can have now. So, yeah, we just laid with Mason. And uh, there's something about laying next to your son. You put your hand on his chest, and you could feel his heartbeat. And uh, you just know it's not going to be there tomorrow. Very difficult. Uh, yeah, we, I probably got very little sleep that night. The next day, just me and Amanda, we didn't want the boys to be there when he passed. We didn't want anyone else but Amanda and myself to be there. Um, we already knew how hard it was going to be for us, and we didn't want the boys to have to see that either. So, we, uh, something in my gut just said it's time. I don't know, it's, I can't even explain where I got the feeling from. Uh, I knew I wanted to push it off, but at the same sense, I knew something something was telling me it was time. And I knew Mason, you know, he hated hospitals. He hated everything about him. He hated IVs. At this point, he has seven or eight IVs. He has a feeding tube. He has all these other things. And I just knew he wasn't happy. But to be honest, I just had a gut 
feeling like this is not what Lisa wants. Like, I can't him laying like this forever just because we are being selfish and we want him with us. So I told Amanda, hey, I think it's time. I think we have to do this. And, uh, of course, she started crying instantly, but we knew it was time. And um, so I told the doctors very, very specifically what I wanted. I wanted all the IVs out of them, YouTube, everything out of them. And uh, <clears throat> they could accommodate that, no problem. So the doctor and nurses came in and they took all the IVs out. And uh, we, uh, Amanda and I were sitting on a couch in the room. And uh, a male nurse picked Mason up, and he carried him over to us. He put his head and chest in Amanda's arms, and I held his legs. And uh, yeah, we uh, we sat there and just had our I had my head on his chest until uh, I didn't feel it beating anymore. And uh, after uh, after he had passed, I uh, I held him on my own for a couple minutes. The man to help on her own for a couple minutes, and then I uh, I picked him up and I carried him to his bed. And you know, there's a lot. Obviously, that was the hardest moment in my life. Uh, a moment I'll never forget. But the other hard moment is having to leave the hospital. Like, you know, I think as other dads can probably attest, you feel like your job is to protect and take care of your family. And, uh, uh, obviously, the sadness you feel, the sense of failure you feel as a parent, like you did something wrong. Uh, after Mason passed, I think we probably stayed in the hospital for maybe another 30 minutes and there was nothing we could do. He wasn't coming back no matter how much we wanted and we couldn't stay there. So, um, the grief counselor said that they would walk with him to the appropriate places and that they wouldn't leave him alone at any time until the funeral home had arrived. I had set all that up before, the day before. Amanda could not walk at all. We had a, had a wheelchair for her. I could barely walk. They had a couple people walk down with us to make sure we got to our vehicles okay. Uh, and then, like I said, we were we lived in Mount Home, but the hospital was in Boise. That's a one-hour drive, and it was an extremely, felt like 10 hours, to be honest with you. Uh, Amanda and I didn't talk at all. Just, you know, when you drive, but you kind of go into like that stare of, you know, you're safe, but at the same sense, just kind of not thinking right. And I know that's how it was. And then the other hard part, you know, you get home, walking through that front door the first time without them, knowing that this is your new, your new life. And that hard part. The next couple days were a blur, to be honest with you. Uh, going to sleep was very hard as the night goes on. It's quiet. During the day, you have distractions as the night goes on. 
you know, have those same distractions. So it makes it that much more difficult as you think about the mistakes you think you made, the fact that you don't have them anymore, uh, extremely difficult. And then I think the hardest part for me, or some of the hardest parts for me too, was, you know, again, that dad moment where you want everybody under your roof knowing that you can protect them. And I knew he was in the funeral home down the road. And there, he, I felt like he was alone. And I hated every second of it. I still hate it. It's me. You know, the only sense that I get now that Mason in his grave is alone is that he's buried next to his aunt. Amanda lost her sister, Carrie, when she was younger. And we, uh, Amanda's mom gave up her plot so Mason could be buried next. So that's where Mason is now. But what a what a comfort to be really um, knowing that I feel like Mason's not alone there. If that you know, it's I can't explain it. It's just how I feel. I feel like he's not alone. Uh, the funeral arrangements. We had Mason buried back in Buffalo, so figuring out how to do that is actually. You know, there's logistics involved that have to be planned in terms of getting, uh, I, I know what happens, but in terms of getting the casket on uh, the plane and the funeral home made all those arrangements for us. They just wanted to know which flight we were. And, uh, and as we went through the airport, we watched Mason on every flight get loaded onto the plane with us and get taken off and watch where they put his, his casket and everything and um, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on them the whole way. <clears throat> Another really difficult part for me was picking out his clothing for his casket. You know, those are no parents ready to make those kinds of choices. They, they don't want to. Who would want to? You know, and we knew Mason hated getting dressed up. What kid doesn't? Mason was a fourth freak, just wanted to be outside playing with his friends all the time. So, you know, we made sure to to dress him in something we knew he'd be comfortable in. So he said, soccer shorts, cool t-shirt that he would like, knee-high socks that he always wore, brand new brand new shoes, put in there a hoodie in there for him because he always had hoodies on. Yeah, that was that was another really difficult part for us. Yeah, that, damn, that's the first couple of days. It, it was rough by all means. And I'm sure, you know, when we get into your story, it, it was rough for you too and, um, but I'm glad I'm able to share it, you know, let people know it's okay to talk about those things, especially if you're a parent that lost a child. You shouldn't keep that stuff bottled up. It, it'll, it'll eat you every single day. So the more I talk about it, you know, it never gets easier, but at the same sense, I feel better after I talk about it. Mm-hmm. There's uh, <laughs> so many things you just said that, yeah, they just hit me right in my heart. Cause, and you said it earlier in one of our talks that um, we forget a lot of things, too, that have happened. And then once we start sharing, as bad as our memories already are about these events, here comes a whole nother flood of other things that we've forgotten that are just as bad, if not worse, a lot of times. Yeah. Um, I notice more and more as I tell Mason's story how things come back to me. 
but again, I, I don't want to forget those moments either. Uh, some people do, but for me, you know, that's Mason's story too. And I want to make sure it's told the right way and that people know yeah. that he, up to that moment, he lived a great life. He loved every moment of it. I, at least I think he did. And uh, as hard as not having him here is, I'm grateful every single day for those seven years we had him. Yeah. Well, Dan, as hard as it was for me to tell my story, I think it's time you shared yours and let yeah. us know about Jameson. And there's there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of differences. I, uh, as I shared last week, we, we didn't have any advance notice with Jameson. He, he was perfectly healthy when we put him to bed. And within an hour and a half, he was up sick. And within 10 hours later, he was gone. Um, it was, as I shared last week, he was just up all night, uncomfortable and uh, sick but un and uncomfortable, but I don't think he was in pain. I kept, I kept checking with him all night long, what hurts? Tell me what hurts so I can decide if we're going to the hospital or try to help. As Chris just talked so much about, the dad protection mode kicks into high gear here and... Um, we want to do everything we can to protect our family and at these moments we're helpless and it's for me at least it, it's crushing and it's still two years later crushes me and haunts me that even though there was absolutely nothing I could do for Jameson I couldn't protect my boy and that that's a haunting haunting thought to live with for the rest of our lives we as I shared last week we I I left Jameson's bedroom a little around five o'clock in the morning after spending the whole night with him trying to make him comfortable he um, he was trying to sleep and he asked me to leave because he just couldn't sleep with with me in there and the, the sounds and whatever it was so I did and then uh, Erica came in and checked on him and he he was still alive. He he told her, from what Erica's told me, he he told her she, he was thirsty. And we were trying not to let him drink any because he we thought it was the flu and he was just going to throw it up. So we were trying our best to just not let him drink too much. And then after that, he, he laid his head on Erica's chest. So she, she kind of stayed there for a few more minutes rubbing his head and... And then just sat him back in his bed. I'm I'm pretty sure that she sat him upright against the headboard and his wall. And when she left, and it's something that honestly I I, I don't recall ever asking her directly. I think I'm just too scared of, to know the answers of every little detail. And I went in a few minutes later and found him. He was, he was sitting upright against the headboard in the wall. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the position that Erica laid him in. And I, as Chris talked about Mason's eyes, uh, when I saw Jameson's eyes, they were open and they were rolled up. And my gut knew right away that he was gone. And... I was hoping 
I was hoping that it was, wasn't true, but I, I just knew in my gut that he was already gone. And uh, as I shared, I pulled him down. I, I tried CPR on him, and there was just no response. And when EMS got there, they they whisked him out of there instantly. That so they knew they knew too that this was serious. Uh, we we gathered everything quickly. Got Reese got restressed, and we we made it to the hospital. Our hospitals literally four minutes four miles away from our house so it's a quick drive but still it's I don't I don't know when something like that's happening and you and you kind of know what's coming it it can still seem like it's an hour or two or forever uh, but we got to the hospital and they they sent us right, right into one of the waiting rooms and I remember sitting there in the waiting room for about 30 minutes waiting for that doctor and I was hoping for the good news to come but I think realistically, the the good news that I was really hoping I would get was not that he was completely dead yet, but he was he was alive enough that we could say goodbye. I didn't. I don't think I had any. I don't think I had any thoughts that he was going to make it. But I wanted to say goodbye at least. And we, unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't get to do that in a way that he could hear us. Um, the doctor came in a little while. He told us that they had tried everything they could and it was not successful. So they took us back uh, to Jameson's room, and again, it was it was like three rooms down the hallway. It wasn't far at all, but just the tremendously awful walk that is, um, whether it's an hour drive or walking three rooms down the hall. Just that's just an awful, awful. Uh, time knowing what you're walking into and then you walk up and, and at least in our hospital it's it's the big glass solid window doors so you see it as you're approaching it you see that bed holding your little boy and knowing that he's gone it just it was just one one avalanche after the uh, after another of just in every way awful awful things so we we went in there and we we spent our time with Jameson and just held held his hands rubbed his head rubbed his chest gave him hugs gave him kisses did everything we could um, and it just it was awful uh, the shock of everything, how quickly it had happened, the the realization sinks in instantaneous that life is never going to be the same. And then again, the dad mode, the the husband mode, just watching Erica sitting there crying and knowing that there isn't a single thing that I can do to help my wife is 
as Chris, as Chris just said, um, it, it makes us feel like a, a failure. Um, and we just, so we, we just spent our time with Jameson theirs and, uh, we ultimately ended up rushing our time a little bit because we we knew right away that we wanted Jameson to be an organ donor. If if we've got to go through this, at least maybe we can help somebody else. And so we called the doctors back in, and the the chaplain at the hospital came in, and we were like, "We're we're gonna go now. Uh, we want we want him." We want him refrigerated so that we can save his organs. And again, that's just one more of those awful thoughts that we have to process immediately. Uh, so they, they told us okay, and, and we walked out of there. And from that point on, it was just a silent walk to our car. The shock of everything that had just happened. And we, we drove the few miles home and we we just walked in and we got in bed and we just laid there for an hour. Uh, I know Erica cried a lot. I cried on and off because again I was I was numb. I was just completely numb and in shock of how quickly our our perfect life had changed to just the the worst life we could possibly be living at that moment. So we laid there, I don't know, for an hour, two hours time, who knows what, how long things took. And then the realization hit us that we needed to start letting people know. So we, we called our bosses at work to let them know. We called, we called our best friends and our family to, to let them know. And that, again, just, it's just a terrible conversation to have with your best friends who are your family to let them know that what had happened. And then also just give them permission to call other people. Um, just, as, as Chris said a little while ago, we, we take our sons for granted. We take our health for granted. We take our lives for granted. And when tragedy like this hits, it's it's just incredible the number of heartbreaking gut-wrenching things that you need to think about and start taking care of immediately so we just i mean that for us it was it was quick um i've chris and i've talked a little bit about it over the months that we've known each other and and it's one of the, another one of those things that just haunts me in my thoughts. I have so many haunting thoughts, but I hear I hear stories from uh, Jameson and Reese. One of one of their teachers, their first grade teacher, uh, they lost a newborn, and they knew early on in the pregnancy that their baby would not survive long at all. Once born, it, she would be born but she wouldn't survive long. I have other colleagues that have lost babies. Uh, one was, I think, about 20 weeks early, totally unexpected, and that baby didn't survive. Um, I think I think all the time about 
those stories and Mason's story, and I'm like, God, is what's what's the best way to live through this? Is it better to lose a newborn because you don't have memories? Is it better to lose my nine-year-old because at least I have nine years of memories? Is it better to have notice and know that death is coming so that we can we can say our goodbyes and everything or is that just as bad because you know that you it's happening so you've got days to think about it and worry about it um it's just it's just incredibly sickening thoughts that haunt me constantly and it, it it's just awful um i think I think that's one of the main things I want people to understand that uh, Chris mentioned earlier, uh, PTSD. And I, I don't know the ins and outs of PTSD, but I have to imagine that I'm suffering from it. This is this is something that, it's, a, it's certainly a trauma-filled event, and it's something that even, we're over two years into it now, and it's still haunts me in so many different ways on a daily basis. For those of you who are listening who haven't suffered grief, we, we want you to understand that it, it doesn't go away. Erica had a breakdown just this morning, and there was nothing in particular that set it off, but she had a breakdown. It just, it is always there, hovering over us, in any word at any time, any action at any time could be helpful or it could set us off. And it's just something that we, I want to ask at least my, my supporters, my friends, my family to understand that um, it's just, I never know from day to day, from minute to minute, how I'm going to be. So if I, if I come across as rude or short or upset or um, that I don't care about you or something like that, I hope that you will take a step back and just realize that there's, there's a very good chance that there is something much deeper going on in my mind at that moment. And it's, it's nothing personal. It's nothing that you did right. It's nothing you did wrong. But it's just, that's the life that I live in now every day. Chris, go ahead and jump in if you want. Yeah, damn, wow. Uh, what a difficult story. Uh, but obviously, thank you for sharing that. Because I just did it, and I know how hard it is to relive that moment. So hard to hear. I, I sit here, ponder, thinking about what you said. What I don't know if there really is a more difficult in terms of, you know, I had those moments to say goodbye. Yours was more instant. I had to make the decision when he was going to pass. You didn't have that option. They're, they're so hard, no matter what. And the, the people who uh, lost their baby before they were even born or uh, just all those circumstances, so hard. So and it affects everybody so differently, too. Uh, I think you're right in terms of, you know, like you said, Erica had a rougher morning. Wow. All the time. 
Amanda and myself all the time, just flip of a switch. We can be fine one moment and the next minute I'm in instant depression and sadness. It's not uncommon for me at work to close the door, have a good cry, wipe mm-hmm. my tears, open the door, get right back to work, start to interact with people again. It's happened a bunch of times already, and I know it will happen again. After those emotional stories where Chris and Dan shared the days that they lost Mason and Jameson, we're going to take a break for this episode, and we will continue next time on A Father's Love, Healing Through Heartache, where Chris and Dan will share the stories of how their family and friends stepped up the day of their loss. We hope to see you then.